this is cold war conversations if you're new here you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand cold war history accounts do make sure you follow us in your podcast app or join our emailing list at coldwarconversations.com now have you ever heard of dickie chappelle no i hadn't either but I'm delighted to bring you the unknown story of this trailblazing female war correspondent. Dickie's career started in World War II where she reported from some of the Pacific War's toughest battlefields of Iwo Jima and Okinawa. During the Cold War, she reported from Hungary during the 1956 uprising and was held in the infamous faux prison and interrogated by the Hungarian security forces. Dickey went on to report the struggle of the Algerian Liberation Front covering their campaign against French colonial rule as well as becoming the first Western female reporter to march with Castro's Cuban Liberation Army. I speak with author Larissa Reinhardt who's written a new book about Dickey Chappelle called First to the Front. There's links in the episode information where you can purchase the book. I'm delighted to welcome Larissa Reinhardt to our Cold War conversation. She's special to me in particular because I learned about her first when I was actually in high school. And I would go down to the local record store and I would buy a, a CD, right? Um, and one, uh, one Saturday, I remember I bought um, this album by Nancy Griffith, who's this incredible folk singer. And the album is called Clock Without Hands. And on it is this song called A Pearl's Eye View. And it's about Dickie Chappelle. And it's about how she would fly in planes and jump out of planes and do whatever it took to get the story. And so from, you know, a very formative age, I internalized Dickie Chappelle as a folk hero of mine, right? She lived with me um, for a long time. And I, I never really thought to write about her or even look further into her life because she was a folk hero that sort of just exists in this other realm. Um, but then when I was doing my master's degree and I was writing about the audio letters, the cassette letters that uh, GIs would send back to the States um, from the Vietnam War, I came across her name again. And I hadn't really thought about her in a long time. And it just conjured up all these memories. And I started looking into her legacy more and more. And I realized two things. One, that she was incredible, that she had made such an, an amazing contribution to the field of journalism um, and also Cold War history. And that, uh, two, no one really knows about her. And I, I really felt um, the need to to change to change that. Why is she missing from the pantheon of female journalists? That's a that's a great question, right? Because we do have this incredible pantheon of, of female journalists, and people are knew about them and are really starting to re- rediscover them. But I, I think that there are. I think that I think that Dickie had three strikes against her um one she was a woman right like that alone uh sort of comes with its own challenges in terms of historical preservation um and then two she 
I mean, I, I don't want to jump too far ahead, but during the Cold War, she wrote about people outside of the United States, people of color, people around the world who were fighting against communism, who were giving their lives, sacrificing so much in the fight for freedom. And a lot of her reporting was about them and valorizing them and their efforts. And she was also very critical of American foreign policy and its lack of support of these struggles. And I, I think she didn't have a champion um, to continue that charge. And finally, um, you, you know, and th this is might be problematic to say, but she was very anti-communist, right? She was adamantly against communism from the start and vocal about it. And I think um, a lot of academia at the time uh, had a shied away from that um, stance. And then uh, moving on, a lot of anti-communists were painted with the same McCarthyist brush, right? And I think she fell under that unfortunate categorization, which was not who she was. So I, I think, you know, it took a lot of unpacking to really find who she was um, and her true voice and her true legacy. And I think that's why she's, she's very much um, absent so far from from the historical record how did she get into journalism from the beginning it was just sort of you know from a very young age she was a dairy owl she loved to fly planes um when she was a teenager she got a job at um the flying circus in in her hometown of sherwood and her parents were not a huge fan of this and packed her off to live with her um her uh, grandparents in Miami, where she then got another job at a flying circus. Um, and this was really right on the cusp of World War II, right? This was 1939. She was reporting on um, the uh, Havana Air Show just, as the just at the moment that Hitler was seizing power. So she moves to New York City to actually be an assistant to... Um, TWA. And she is there when Hitler invades Poland. And so she decides to take her um, combined skill of writing and aviation knowledge and write about um, the S3F Grumman plane. Uh, which was sort of the top of the line uh, plane being military plane being rolled off at the time. And um, she is the first journalist to fly in one of these planes as they're trying to sell them to the allies before America enters the war. And that was published in the New York times. So this was really uh, her review was published in the New York times. So this was really her entrance into journalism. And then of course, World War II follows um, soon thereafter. And she just knew that she wanted to be part of that history, that she wanted to contribute. She wanted to contribute to the war effort. Um, and she saw journalism as her opportunity to, to do so. She does. And I'm probably jumping forward ahead here, but you know, there, there's loads in the book. So um, we're, there's no way we're going to cover everything <laughs> here. But she manages to 
to be with the U.S. Marines on Okinawa and uh, Iwo Jima, which were some of the most ferocious battles of the uh, Pacific War for the U.S. She kind of made her way by hook or crook to, to Iwo Jima, right? She was she started in uh, Alameda Hospital in Oakland, and then she got permission to go forward from there. Forward from there was Pearl Harbor. Then she got permission to go to Guam, right? And so she's to doing her best to follow the progress of the Pacific uh, Ocean Theater. And then finally, she gets permission to board uh, a hospital ship. And in World War II, women were not allowed in combat. In fact, they were only allowed to be where women were already. And what that sort of typological statement means is that she had to be where nurses were. So she could be, you know, in field hospitals and um, hospital ships. And, you know, these people were also putting their lives on the line. There was a great deal of danger. Of course, we know the USS Comfort was um, bombed by a kamikaze plane. And so... Dickie really wanted to be at the center of action. She talked her way on Iwo Jima to the front. And in, I think this was D-Day plus, plus nine that she was there. And so we, you don't have this, um, you know, what we often recognize as the quintessential scene of Iwo Jima, which is the amphibious landing. Instead, we have just men in foxholes in the sand for days and days and days fighting for their lives um which is a harder story to cover it's a harder story to convey because it's a lot of waiting and it's a lot of fear it's not a lot of action um but that's what she covered and that's what she saw and that was her first experience of war i think which is more true to the reality of war than perhaps what we are exposed to as as civilians so she came, she came back, she went back to the hospital ship, sort of very much changed by that and um, with a greater understanding of the scope and scale of, of war and its, um, and its stakes. And then, you know, she was with the fleet at the end of Iwo Jima. Um, and she then talked her way again onto Okinawa, which was such a different situation because the Japanese armies had army had fortified themselves within um, Okinawa's extensive caves. It wasn't the same sort of amphibious landing drama that we see in Iwo Jima. It was more of a protracted, protracted um, battle. And so she was there. I believe she got to Iwo Jima on like D-Day plus three and she was there for a week. Um, but she was also there uh, on the day that the um, Japanese army revealed herself um, on April 16th. And then she uh, had to leave because, again, women were not allowed in combat. And she had sort of talked her way there and also impressed um a number of military personnel who made exceptions for her and the you know generals and colonels who were on the ground but the press officer the admiral who was a press officer in the rear area decided that she had to go that she couldn't be there and that she should be stripped of her press credentials because she hadn't broken the rules and so she had to to leave and she had to find her own way out 
um, because the military was, um, the Marines were otherwise engaged. And she very graciously um, made her way aboard an LCVP boat that took her, um, you know, back to the fleet. Well, this happened to be on April 17th, which was the first of several concentrated kamikaze attacks. So she was on, um, on a ship as, you know, hundreds and hundreds of kamikaze planes were assailing the fleet for, I believe it was 36 hours. And so again, this was her, her introduction to war, her introduction to reporting and she was in it completely from then on for the rest of her life. That sort of impressing military personnel and being allowed to go where she perhaps shouldn't be going is sort of like a, a quite a constant theme in her story. And I think one one of the scenes, and there's many sort of like lovely scenes in, in the book, but one of the bits I remember, and it is she's either on it, um, Okinawa or Iwo Jima I think it's Oki- Okinawa and she's taking some photos from a hillock and there's this whistling going going on and she does she she's like oh, I've, I've no idea what that is I'll just keep taking my photos yeah and it's the Japanese firing at her yes yeah and it's her early naivety of what it was like to be in combat obviously going forward as she becomes more experienced she knows to keep her head down mm-hmm yeah, I mean, it, it, luckily, you know, she survived it. But yeah, she described it as the sound of wasps all around her because there were just bullets flying um, by her head. Uh, and the uh, lieutenant colonel who had driven her there was um, incensed, but also uh, somewhat charmed. Um, both by her naivete, but her willing to lar- willingness to learn and her uh, desire to be there and and record and to document, um, you know, their their experiences. So post World War Two, um, she works as a documentarian for some international aid organizations. But one of the many stories I wanted to talk about was her experiences in Hungary in 1956. So. There's a revolution in Hungary where there's an attempt to overthrow the Soviet control of the country. And uh, so the freedom freedom fighters fight this uh, communist regime. Dickie is there to cover the humanitarian crisis for uh, Life magazine. So can, can you tell me about some of her experiences there? She went to Austria um, to cover the just waves of refugees that were coming over the border and she was so inspired by the austrians who you know were building these enormous bonfires as beacons for refugees to to cross the border and of course this is a story that speaks to our own moment um and this is the middle of winter uh and so the tundra is you know absolutely freezing and then, so she's, you know, interviewing the refugees that have, have made their way over, and she's interviewing the Austrians who are helping them. And then she's standing on the border, right? And there's not a wall. It's just sort of, you know, where Austria begins and Hungary, uh, hun- Hungary ends. And these two students run 
across the border. I mean, and they're in regular clothes. And Dickie follows them. And what they're doing is that they're finding refugees who have lost their way, who have been understandably frightened by machine gun fire that is sort of spraying at all times to keep refugees away from from the border. And they're bringing them over to Austria in these last few hundred uh, yards. And so Dickie begins to do this every night, and she's joined by several other uh, journalists, including uh, James Michener, who was incredibly impressed by, by her bravery. She was the only woman there, of which I am aware, and I believe she was the only woman there. And together they helped shepherd hundreds of refugees to, to safety. But eventually she decides that this, you know, this isn't enough, that she wants to actually go into Hungary to cover the continuing fighting that is occurring as the Soviets are um, over in the process of overthrowing a democratically elected government. But unfortunately, she is arrested by the Hungarian secret police on the way and uh, and taken to uh, Fo Street Prison, which was um, the most infamous prison in Budapest. And if you if you went there, you know, the understanding was that you would be tortured. And she was very much aware of this because many of the refugees that she had interviewed had survived this experience. So she knew exactly what she was heading for, which is sort of even more terrifying, I believe, than, than some level of ignorance. And she has quite a rough time there. She's put in solitary there. She can hear a guy being beaten up in the next cell, screaming. They try and remove any sense of time, so meal times are really erratic. And she's interrogated a number of times to try and sign a confession as to, I think she's accused of being an agent of imperialism or something like that. Yeah, so she, you know, she was not accorded any any special treatment for being an American. You know, she was in solitary confinement for the better part of six weeks. Um, she was in complete solitude for an entire week. You know, no one spoke to her. Uh, her food was passed through a Judas window in the door. Um, she, you know, was fed on a starvation diet. She lost, I don't know, 30 pounds in six weeks. She lost hearing in her left ear. Um, and uh, though she was never physically tortured, um, she was threatened. She was threatened with it several times. And she was told that if she didn't sign the confession, that she would be um, raped by her male guards, tortured, and then hung. Um, so uh, she survived and endured all of this. And it really changed the way she understood tyranny and communism in a way that I don't think a lot of other um, white Americans at that time um, had the capacity to comprehend or or empathize with because she knew what it was to lose her American citizenship. Um, she knew what it was to live 
under a communist regime. And so she knew fully the stakes of the Cold War. She's suffering PTSD after this experience, as you would imagine you you, you would. And she, she has some time sort of recovering from that. But I think that this sort of sets in her this burning desire to cover these human stories. I think one of the differences with that is she's very much interested in the human side of things and not big picture journalism. And the only way to capture the human side of things is to be there and looking people in the eyes. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, at the time, um, big picture reporting was sort of the, you know, uh, norm of the day, right? And what we mean by that is, what are the generals doing? What are the heads of states doing? Um, what are the policy initiatives? Not who are the people uh, on the ground, boots on the ground, enforcing these policies, and who are the citizens that are being affected um, by these initiatives. And so that those are the stories that she was interested in covering and that she went to extraordinary lengths to cover. Um, you know, and you mentioned that when she got out, she she was suffering from PTSD. But on the other side of that was this burning desire to get back out into the field. And so soon thereafter, I mean, I think it was just eight months after her release that she went to Algeria to cover the Algerian um, War of Independence against the against the French um, because she wanted to present to the Western press a different side of that conflict and present to the American people um, the true story of the people who are fighting um, that war for independence. Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War Conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week. To be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War, as a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. And this is an interesting story to, to cover because it's a ally of the United States effectively um, occupying a country that now wants its independence. And so there's this uh, Algerian liberation front who are fighting the French. And in fact, her journey into getting into seeing them is, is quite difficult. I mean, it's like three days on foot, mule and horse to, to, to get in there. And then once she's there, she finds herself under bomb attack from American-made aircraft, albeit being flown by the French. Yes, exactly. She is, you know, up in the foothills of the Atlas Mountains, and um, she's with the Scorpion Battalion, who is sort of, you know, the uh, FLN, the Algerian Liberation Front's um, special ops, right? They're, you know, they've blown up more French train tracks than anyone else. 
Um, and so uh, they they wake up. Uh, she wakes up after she has finally gotten you know to their camp. She's drinking her coffee, overlooking the you know the hill that she has just you know mountain really that she's just summited um, in the dead of night. You know, um, and they hear uh, a plane coming in. And she recognizes it immediately because it's a plane that she heard um, in World War II. And uh, she knows it's an American plane. And so she and the rest of the Scorpion Battalion take cover, you know, in the rock formations. And I, I think it was an hour that they're just listening to it circle. And she can see through her viewfinder that it is loaded with, with bombs. And so finally, you know, it flies off. It doesn't see um, anyone. And then, uh, you know, as they're, you know, firing their their weapons in celebration that they have, you know, lived to fight another day, they hear the bombs go off. And so um, her guide, uh, who's a lieutenant colonel in the uh, FLN, uh, takes her to where it has dropped. And they have dropped bombs on a Bedouin um, village you know, civilians. And she finds uh, an unexploded bomb and it has, you know, markings that indicate that it was made in America. And so there is no doubt in her mind that America has aided and abetted the, you know, war crime of um, killing civilians within a combat zone. And so again, this really changes her. This changes her opinion of what it is to be a patriot, of what it is to fight for American freedom, and what it is to be on the front lines of of the Cold War. And it affects her approach um, and her opinions uh, moving forward as she continues um, to cover the evolving, you know, battlefields. I mean, how difficult did she find getting that story published? in the US because she has various challenges about some of the subjects she covers. You know, she did. Okay. So when she was in Algeria, she was writing for the Spaida syndicate, who was a small syndicate, right? And these are the only people who would, um, they were competitor to the AP, right? So they put out um, articles and then they're published in local newspapers um, across the country, but they are a very small competitor. And they were the only people who would sponsor her um, coverage because none of the big players really believed that she could get the story um, or even that this story mattered. So because she was, in a way, flying under the radar, she was able to get that particular story covered. And then another thing that she did was she would really couch her criticisms in dramatic stories right so she wrote a story about uh the execution of an algerian who was a collaborator with the french um and because this had a certain sense of violence to it and drama a, a male magazine a man's magazine called the grossi published it because it would have this sort of you know machismo appeal but within that article she also worked in these more critical you know, points that were critical of, of American foreign policy. So she she was able to circumvent some of the obstacles that faced her, one, by, you know, working with smaller um, distributors, or two, 
by sort of, uh, Emily Dickinson says it, right? Tell the truth, but tell it slant. And I think um, Dickie was a master at that, of, of finding what people would want to read and then let it putting in what they needed to hear within, within that. And how's her relationship with Tony, her husband, at this point? They are divorced at this point. You know, just to sort of backtrack, she married Tony when she was 19 years old. He was 41, I believe. Um, you know, and he was, he was silver-tongued, experienced um, vet, World War One vet. Um, you know, he was a, a naval, an aerial photographer in the Navy. And then in World War II was again recruited to teach um, uh, uh, a new generation how to do this. And he was a great photographer and he was a brilliant developer, right? This is alone is, a, is an art. Um, but he was also um, an alcoholic and later a drug addict and a very controlling partner who did not want to see his wife exceed his success, um, which she very much did. And so she reached this critical juncture where she could either stay married or, you know, live the life that she wanted for herself. And she chose the latter. Um, and she really never looked back and never had a serious relationship again. You know, women um, continue to struggle with this, but in a way that um, pales in comparison to that time where you could be a wife or you could have a job. And um, she wanted to have her career and not the career of a housewife. That being said, I would, I, I do want to mention that she had a complex view of motherhood. She went out of her way to praise and really talk about women and mothers doing traditional women's work in ways that were heroic um, because she viewed them that way genuinely. And she also know, knew that there was no revolution um, without domestic labor. And so she wanted um, that to be part of the historical record, part of her journalism as well. You know, um, she, she was covering uh, the um, anti-Castro militias in, in Miami later on. And she said of one of the wives that there was a place in Valhalla for her um, because she got the kids to school on time and, you know, swept up after the boys made the bombs in the sun deck. Um, and she's right. So anyway, but that wasn't the life that she wanted for herself. Well, I mean, I mean the, the mention of the, uh, the Cuban exiles is a good point to talk about her next uh, location she was at, which was uh, Cuba before uh, Castro takes power. She's the first Western female reporter to report with uh, the Cuban Revolutionary Army. But I particularly liked her trick in terms of uh, getting into the rebel area uh, when uh, she really shouldn't be there. Do you just want to uh, tell us about that? So, yeah, Dickie was uh, very resourceful. So she first flew into Havana, which was no problem because, um, you know, Havana is still, you know, America's casino and no one's going to question a, you know, white woman flying into Havana. 
But then she has to get to Santiago, where the bulk of the fighting is happening. And interestingly, and I won't go too much into this, but Santiago is also where the sugar industry is centered in Cuba, which is the economic um, center of Cuba. So it makes sense that Castro would be attacking this area um, first and foremost, rather than rather than sort of the more tourist industry of Havana. So she gets there, and um, Batista has just dropped a total dragnet uh, of information, and you know alerted the police to jettison anyone suspected of being a reporter. So she uh, lands and is immediately questioned by the police that why would an American woman be interested in coming to Santiago? You know, it's surrounded by bandits. There's not enough to eat. Why are you here? But what was in Santiago then and now is the um, Guantanamo military base. And so she tells this police officer that her lover is stationed at Guantanamo and that she just has to go, she has to go see him. And he, uh, you know, just sort of smiles and it waves through her couple. You know, in the meantime, she's like joining up with the, you know, Cuban revolutionaries on the golf course to walk into the same Sierra Maestros. But, um, but yeah, that's how she gets into Cuba. Um, yeah, I don't know. If a man would be able to pull that off, you know, like I think she really leaned into being a woman for that one. <laughs> it's it's a brilliant story and it and it shows her ingenuity in terms of getting into uh places where she's she's not um supposed to be. And what one of the stories while while she's in Cuba that I found fascinating is she she finds a, a US Marine serving mm. with the uh, Cuban Revolutionary Army, which is quite an interesting little story. Yeah, so Jerry uh, Holthauser was uh, was really a Marine um, uh, at Guantanamo, and he was, along with several others, kidnapped by Raul Castro, Castro Fidel Castro's brother. And the purpose of Raul doing this was to show the Americans that no one was safe um, from you know, the Cuban Revolutionary Army, that they had complete control over the the country. Now, they weren't harmed in any way. They were fed. You know, if it was raining, the prisoners would um, sleep inside while the, you know, Cuban um, army would sleep outside. And um, Jerry started asking them, you know, why, why are you fighting? Why are you doing this? Because, you know, again, Batista was an American ally. Havana was this playground for, you know, Americans. It just seemed like there's no no problem. And a lot of people compare um, Batista to Mussolini, right? The trains ran on time, the streets were clean, but only if you're in Havana. So what what they began to tell Jerry was that, you know, there's this incredibly brutal infrastructure of secret police throughout Cuba that would arrest and torture and kill tens of thousands of Cuban civilians in order to um, maintain their power structure. And it didn't matter if you were a man or a woman. It didn't matter if you, if you were an adult or a child. You know, they, if you raised your voice against them, they would come for you. And so Jerry was very affected by this. And eventually Raul released them, um, you know, back into American custody. And several weeks later, Jerry decided that 
he wanted to fight for freedom. That's why he had signed up for the military to fight for freedom. And so he hopped the fence of Guantanamo and joined the revolutionaries. And so that's that's where he was. And he, he fought for the entirety of the revolution. He stayed in Cuba um, afterwards. But then what happened with Castro happened with Castro. And uh, because he was against communism, because he was against dictatorship, he had to basically flee Cuba back to the United States where he was court-martialed and convicted um, and dishonorably discharged for deserting. The U.S. Marines is a constant theme in this mm-hmm. uh, in this um, story because at, at this point, Castro isn't sort of allied to the Soviet Union. He's fighting Batista. Uh, there's an appetite for change in the country. And so he's he is seen by some in the West as a positive influence. Obviously, there's a there's a number of people in the U.S. who want to keep Batista in in power. So there's sort of this triangle, right? There's this trifecta of the Cuban Revolution. There's Che Guevara, there's Raúl, and there's and there's Fidel. And um, Raúl and and Che were very outspoken against America and Western imperialism. And Fidel was somewhat more diplomatic about it, um, I think, because he was trying to to court to court that, and he succeeded in a way. You know, the CIA purportedly and probably did hedge their bets and fund Castro's army to a certain degree. What Dickie wrote about um, before and after the revolution was that America needed to support people fighting for freedom, the Cubans fighting for freedom, for their independence, which was, in her opinion, their birthright, or else they would go and find support where they could. And that meant the Soviet Union. And she was very adamant, um, and this is sort of down to the nitty gritty, but part of what kept the you know, Batista regime afloat was sugar subsidies and imports by the United States. And Dickey was very vocal about the need to continue those subsidies and imports from Castro so that his government would have the money to succeed in its vision, which at the time was to rebuild Cuba, to support the farmers, to break up the large-scale Western farms that had sort of benefited from these oppressive policies of Batista. And when the U.S. cut off this market opportunity. Castro did exactly what Dickey thought he was going to do, which was go to the Soviet Union and get support from from them. And, you know, this was a pattern that she saw repeating throughout the Cold War was countries would come to America, ask for support, America would deny it, and then they would turn to the Soviet Union. Hello, I'm Craig Donald from Aberdeen. And I support Cold War Conversations with a monthly donation because it marries interesting historical content with fantastic storytelling. Ian is a great gift as an interviewer. He knows his subject so that the conversations are meaningful, but he also allows guests to tell their own story. Cold War Conversations is part of my weekly routine, and I would urge you to make it part of yours. Want to be like Craig and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War? As a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free. You'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. 
Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more or follow the link in the episode information. She met Castro because she was invited into his command post. What did she make of him? So she interestingly knew from the start that he was a bit of a megalomaniac, that he was a demagogue, um, that he, and she very famously said, um, he is better when he has an enemy. And so someone like that always needs an enemy. And when you win the war, who is your enemy? The enemy is the people. And that's what he did. He turned on his people. And she was not, uh, she was impressed by the people who fought with him, who fought for the end for Cuba's independence. But she was not, she didn't have a great deal of faith or trust in him. And she hoped that um, the movement that had grown around his charisma would carry the day. Uh, but unfortunately, that was, that was not, that was not the case. After the uh, the Cuban Revolution, she's also involved in in the Bay of Pigs, or she gets wind of the story there, and uh, flew to Key West. And I think this is one of her first experiences of U.S. or CIA censorship of uh, her stories. So this is really when the Cold War gets uh, murky. So she goes down to Key West. And she's actually in the same building where she worked as a teenager when she worked at the Flying Circus um, in Miami. And she goes into this, uh, you know, office of the Cuban expats who are, you know, trying to stage a, you know, incursion or what have you um, against uh, Castro. And the carpets are new and the paint is fresh and there's, you know, uh, indoor plants and there's an expensive mimeograph machine and this young man comes off the mimeograph machine which costs thousands of dollars and he says oh hi dickie i recently read your report and she just knows immediately that this is not a ragtag you know revolutionary group that this is funded um by the cia and so you know this this guy who's a posing as an assistant is clearly uh you know a cia operative and he shows her into a uh, press office and the press officer tells her oh you don't want to go down to cuba you want to go here 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 and here and she tells him she goes you know you got to get this guy out to the front desk he's really giving you away like i know what's up anybody who comes in here knows what's happening like this is this is the cia who she um had various run-ins uh, with throughout her career. Um, but so she doesn't listen to him at all. She immediately rents a plane and uh, starts, you know, hanging out over the side as she started her career doing and taking uh, photographs of the naval fleet assembling. And because she is of that World War II era, right, she takes her film down to uh, the naval press office. And she says, here's my film. Let me know what I can publish. Because she is, she believes that the American, she still believes that the American government will do what is best for the American people and that she puts her faith in them. And she does not want to jeopardize America or Americans in any way. 
And what she is told is that she didn't take this film. She didn't take these pictures. There is no fleet assembling. And that you better forget that, that you better forget that you ever took them because you didn't. And there's no infrastructure to censor them because there's nothing to censor. And, you know, this was really, in, in, there's nothing to censor because it didn't happen, right? They're not saying, oh, go ahead and publish them. She said, they're saying, you can't publish any of this. And it didn't happen. Um, and this is really the beginning of an attempt uh, by the Kennedy administration and then moving forward from that, the American government to control and contain the information coming out of various um, fields of combat within the Cold War in a way that differed from her experience of, of World War II. She gets quite upset because she does discover one of her photos appearing in a Navy publication, doesn't she? So this is jumping board a little bit, but in 1961, right, she couldn't she couldn't photograph the Cuban Missile Crisis. She tried to get to that as well. She was planning on paratrooping into there, but that didn't come to fruition. So she goes to Laos, where there's a secret war happening. The CIA is staging at the time where it's arming and training, you know, uh, mountain peoples in Laos. And she's with a, a special ops, White Star Special Ops under, I believe it was the Aragon program. And she, you know, knows them. She did a jump over South Korea and marched to the DMZ with these guys um, earlier and I believe, 1959. So they know her. She knows them. They know that she can handle herself in a combat situation. And so she lives out there for like two weeks or something like that. And interestingly, because this war is undeclared, there's no really, there's no real um, infrastructure for uh, controlling what journalists go out there and what they're reporting on. So the only question that she's asked before going into this, you know, sort of secret war is, will you eat bats? Because if the supply lines are cut off, you're living on whatever is out there. And she goes, yes, sir. <laughs> so he's like, okay, go ahead and have a blast, kid. So she goes out there and she lives with them and she's, she's photographing them um, fighting the Viet Cong. She's photographing them also f firing um, back. And um, she takes her photographs. She takes her article. She uh, submits them to military censorship. So she saved this. I mean, this is fascinating uh, little tidbit, but she saves a draft edited by military censorship. And they say to her in this draft, this does not uh, jibe with the original story. Please change to make sure it follows what the military wanted to say, basically, because she said that they were, you know, in the, the American special ops were in combat. And according to the Geneva Conventions, the French Indochine War, they were not allowed to be. So she changed it, but she saved that draft. And then she submitted also her photographs to army censorship. And they were lost. You know, they just couldn't find them. And she appealed, I believe, all the way up to the Joint Chiefs of Staff to try and get them back. And, you know, they couldn't find them, couldn't find them, couldn't find them. And then, as you mentioned, you know, I think... Six or eight months later, she gets, you know, the Navy journal and she finds one of her photographs, of course, unattributed to it, unattributed um, that she had taken there. And, you know, once again, she writes to try and get her photographs back, but she is absolutely stonewalled. Um, and so that was really the last 
time that she inherently and unquestioningly trusted the military to allow her to report on what was going on. Um, and again, you know, moving forward, she had a very different opinion, not of her relationship with the boots on the ground, with the guys doing the fighting, but with the people who were in the offices telling her what she could and couldn't say. Yeah, what, one of the uh, things I was surprised to see is she she is sort of considered as an expert in guerrilla warfare, and even the, the US military are asking for her opinion on various operations. Yeah, so, you know, she was one of the only report Western reporters in Algeria. She was one of the only Western reporters in Cuba. And there was not, you know, military um, intelligence presence there to any large degree. So she has already that uh, knowledge base that is rarefied at that time. You know, I didn't get to write about it in the book uh, because a lot gets left out, but um, she was also... Um, in uh, Beirut, in Lebanon, uh, ahead of the Marine landing there as they attempted to and were successful in thwarting a coup attempt in that, um, you know, civil war that was brewing there. So she saw those two factions uh, fighting at that time. So she really had a lot of knowledge about guerrilla warfare going into the Vietnam War era more, I would say, than most, because again, right, big picture reporting is still the style of the day where she has been on the ground all these years. And so as we head into uh, Vietnam, uh, the Vietnam War era, the uh, Marines, uh, the Marine Commandant asks her for a primer on guerrilla warfare because he wants to know, he wants the Marines to know what they're getting in into right because it's well known that the Viet Cong are a formidable guerrilla army so she you know arrives in Saigon 1961 and uh she is talking to the mag the military advisors that are there um, many of whom she knows uh just to backtrack a little bit you know throughout her career she would she would report on um, training of, of of the U.S. military um, in order both to keep abreast of what they're planning to do and where they're planning to go next. And so she really has a um, a relationship with a lot of, of of soldiers, of service members. So, she, you know, they're going out to dinner and getting drinks and talking to them about what is going on. And she recognizes all the uh, telltale signs of a guerrilla war happening. She doesn't even have to go out into the field yet. And she also recognizes that um, America is losing that war because it is not even engaging in the battlefield. And she suggests to them in 1961 that they get out of, you know, they say they have a presence in Saigon, but that they need to go out into the villages. They need to live in the villages. They need to eat what the, what the Vietnamese are eating. They need to help them plant their fields. You know, they have to engage them as allies. And she says, if you don't do this, if you don't treat them as equals, then you will lose the war and you are losing already. And this is 1961. And she couldn't have been, you know, more prescient or more correct in her assessment of the situation. 
there's um, one scene in here where she comes across uh, some US troops guarding some Viet Cong prisoners and uh, reprimands the uh, soldier that that's in charge of them. And, th- and this is against sort of like a, a quite a, a rampant anti-Asian racism that's sort of like permeating the US forces at that time. So Dickie spent a lot of time with the South Vietnamese armed forces. She jumped with their airborne. She patrolled the Ho Chi Minh Trail with the Marines. She, um, you know, was embedded with the army and also, you know, in the Mekong River Delta with the Navy. And she recognized them as brave and willing to fight and also not well, they weren't being well-trained by their American advisors and they were not being supplied and equipped accordingly by America. And she saw this narrative perpetuating itself that the South Vietnamese were not fighting, were not good at fighting, and were not willing to fight. And she very, she pointed out, you know, you say the Vietnamese can't fight. Well, the Viet Cong are kicking your butt all over the map, and these are the same people. These are oftentimes the same families, you know? Like many people who fought with the Viet Minh are now fighting with the South Vietnamese army. And then on the other side, the Viet Cong, these are the same people. They are willing to fight. They can fight. You're just not allowing them to fight. So the other part of it is, you know, she had herself been the prisoner uh, of uh, despotism. And so when she saw Americans, America, behaving in this way that violated the human rights of a suspected Viet Cong agent, she was incensed because she knew that if America engaged in this kind of tactic, that they would lose the war and they had lost it already. You know, and one of the things that Dickie really understood more than most was that a war is determined for the kind of peace you are fighting for. And if the kind of peace that America was fighting for was a violent peace, then they would never win. And so she vocally stood up to to this particular lieutenant colonel in the field. But then she was also very vocal in her opposition uh, of this treatment of South, the South Vietnamese to, you know, the Joint Chiefs of Staffs and the uh, Marine Commandant. She pulled no punches and she said, there is no basis in reality for your treatment and it will only cause you to lose. I mean, she's in her 40s, I think, at, at this point. How, how well known is she in, in the U.S.? Is she known? She is getting more well-known. You know, she does write for Reader's Digest. She's now writing for National Geographic. Um, she published the first photograph of Marines in combat in South in, in Vietnam in National Geographic. You know, she was heralded for this photo and won multiple awards for this photograph, and deservedly so. So, yeah, I think she was starting to get this kind of acknowledgement uh that she deserved um as as she, as we headed into into the vietnam war era you know the post-1965 um period of the war can you take me through november the 2nd 1965 where she's back on patrol with her beloved marines lbj has just 
authorized, not just, but recently authorized the deployment of combat Marines to Vietnam. And Dickie is once more, against all odds, hopeful that America is finally joining the fight uh, for freedom for all people around the world in the same way that she had seen her country do uh, in World War II. And she knows what she's up against, but she's also been talking to a number of you know, people within the government and within the military. And she has herself drafted um, this uh, strategy of, of friendship, right? And it sounds so naive and it sounds so simplistic, but it is really uh, a genuine idea of winning the hearts and minds of people, of actually joining people in their quest for freedom and self-determination and, and as allies and as friends. And she feels she's getting some traction with this idea. And she's not necessarily a pacifist by choice. She understands that guns are necessary to, to fight for freedom. So she joins the Marines uh, in July, which is um, near Da Nang. And it is one of the first sweep and destroy missions of the war. And she falls in line, you know, with the Marines as she is uh, so used to doing. And the young man in front of her uh, steps on an improvised uh, landmine. But because it's improvised, right, it doesn't go off immediately. So he lifts his boot and she is lifted, you know, some 20 feet um, in the air. And she had said to a friend just the night before, when I die, I want to be on patrol with the Marines. And that's where she felt she was at home. And that's where she felt she was needed. And so she lands, and she has, you know, multiple lacerations and the chaplain, you know, rushes over to her. They're not far from, they're not even that far from the base. And she whispers to him, it was bound to happen. You know, she's been in war. She's been in combat for 20 years. Most soldiers don't survive that long in in combat. And she dies um, on the way. Uh, she's being to a helicopter to the Chulai uh, hospital. And, you know, I think she was lost too soon. I, I think her reporting would have made such an impact um, on that time and on that place. But she also died the way that she wanted to go. And after her death, um, the Marines um, honored her as one of their own. She was given a, you know, a military honor guard at her funeral. You know, they played taps. They folded the flag for her. And not, you know, very few civilians are accorded this honor. And there is a plaque in July that reads, um, this is where Dickie Chappelle fell. She was one of our own and we miss her. So, you know, she was tough on the Marines. She was critical of them, but it was from love. And they uh, understood understood that because more than anything, she 
believed in them. She believed in their cause. She believed in their capacity. And she believed in, um, you know, their better angels as she believed in those of, of, of America. So, Larissa's book is called First to the Front, the untold story of Dickie Chappelle, trailblazing female war correspondent. There's links in the episode information where you can purchase the book and support the podcast. Don't miss the episode extras such as videos, photos and other content. Just look for the link in the podcast information. The podcast wouldn't exist without the generous support of our financial supporters and I'd like to thank one and all of them for keeping the podcast on the road. The Cold War Conversation continues in our Facebook discussion group. Just search for Cold War Conversations in Facebook. Thanks very much for listening and see you next week. Not enjoying the ads? Well, you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. By becoming a monthly or annual supporter, you'll enjoy ad-free listening, become a part of our community, receive the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster, and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information.